we're so glad to see you here today. We're going to continue our journey through the book of Colossians, and then at the end of the service, we'll spend some time in worship, and, and uh, I hope reflecting on what the Word of God has to say to us this morning. How many of you really want to live like God wants you to live? You really want to be the Christian that God has called you to be? Most of us in this room, I'm sure you do, or you wouldn't be here on a stormy Sunday morning. You'd be at home and still in bed. Most of us are here because we really do want to honor the Lord with our lives, and, and I appreciate that so much, and I believe God's going to honor your presence here today by speaking to you about areas of your life that, that He's at work in. This is something else I want you to understand. We just sang a song that the work is finished. The work is finished. All we have to do now is, as Chris said when he prayed, is walk it out, put into practice the things that the Lord tells us to do. He's given us His Word that helps guide us and instruct us. He's given us his Holy Spirit that will teach us and correct us and rebuke us and make sure we stay focused on what the Word has to say to us. The rest of it really is us. We just have to participate with what God is doing in our lives, the way he's speaking to us, what he's showing us. We put that into practice. As we obey, God uh, keeps us going in the direction that we need to go in. God helps us honor him with our lives. It's really all about... It's. <laughs> Just putting into practice what the Lord has to tell you. It's as simple as that. It really is. Uh, and, and we are, are talking now about living lives and, that honor the Lord. You know, let's just get right into it. We recognize a lot of people by the way they dress. It becomes really obvious who people are and what they do by the way they dress. We know people serve in the military because of the uniforms they wear. When you go visit a hospital, you can tell the medical personnel from the patients in the hospital, can't you? Why? Because of what they've got on, right, Sharon? I'm not going to see you walk around in one of those weird little robes that opens up and back, right? Never, never. Isn't it funny how the doctor never has to wear those robes? They humiliate us. I guess that's to keep us from going into the hallways and eluding them as they attempt to practice medicine on us. I don't know. We, uh, we, we recognize Mormon missionaries when they come through our neighborhoods on their bicycles. Why? Because they've got the dark pants, the white shirt, and a little tie on, right? You know who they are. The other day, Lorna and I were at um, the Zaxby's in Helena, and there were some teenagers that were there, and they were dressed in what appeared to be some kind of school uniform. And I, I asked her, I said, who, who, are these, who are these kids? And she said, oh, they're students at uh, Evangel Classical. She knew immediately who they were by the uniforms that they had on. She knew who they were associated with. Well, in the same way, Paul contends that uh, for us in Colossians chapter 3, Paul contends that people should recognize us as Christians. Immediately recognize us as Christians. Not by the clothes we wear. I mean, how many of you know you can put a Jesus fish on your shirt, but that doesn't mean you're Christian? It's not about our clothes, it's about our attitudes and our behaviors. And They know we're Christians by the way we live, by the way uh, we speak, by the, by the way we treat them. People should recognize us immediately as followers of Christ. And, and, and Colossians chapter 3, Paul points that out to us. Last week we began uh, to look at this a little bit in depth in uh, Colossians 3 verse 12 where we talked about our Christian identity who we are in Christ. And I want to you know, remind you of the essence of what we talked about last week. It's made clear to us throughout the Gospels, throughout the, the New Testament, really throughout the Bible, 
uh, it's made clear to us that our, our attitudes and behavior will flow out of our identity. We act out of who we believe we are. Our thinking will guide our actions and our attitudes. Soldiers dress like soldiers. Why? Because they're soldiers. Medical personnel dress like medical personnel because they're medical personnel. Christians act like Christians because they are Christians. It, our attitudes, our actions flow out of who we are, who we believe ourselves to be. Last week we talked about three parts to this identity that come across to us over and over and over again in, in the Bible. We're chosen by God. You and I, as followers of Christ, are chosen by God. We didn't choose Him. He chose us by His grace. There is nothing about us that merits His favor, His attention, His affection, but because He is good and He is love, He looks down the corridors of history and He says, you're on my team. You're in my family. He chooses us. He chooses us, not because of anything we've done to deserve it. God chooses us by His grace and makes us His own. That ought to affect the way we live our lives, should it not? It ought to change the way we see life. Suddenly, there's something special about me. Not because of anything about me, but because it's Him. The second thing we talked about is we're holy. We're chosen by God, but we are also holy. That means we've been set apart by God for His purposes and His glory. Set apart by God. We are set apart by God from the rest of the world because he has something in mind for us. He wants us to do a purpose he has set apart for us to accomplish in this life. We're dearly loved by God. We talked about that last week. God loves us. We're dearly loved. Yeah, he loves everybody, but he loves his children specially. We are dearly loved by God. It's a love that is unconditional. It's a love that will not change or waver. It's a love that goes on and on forever. He always has loved us. He loves us now. He will forever love us. If you, are, if you have any insecurity at all about yourself, it should at this moment have completely disappeared. There's nothing to be afraid of anymore. You're chosen, you're holy, and you're dearly loved. Nothing will change that. Nothing you do could change that. That's who you are in Christ. And I tell you, the, the older I get, the more I've come to realize that everybody I know, including myself, is just deeply insecure about something. And we operate, we make our choices out of those insecurities. If we're afraid we're going to lose our job, it will cause us to behave in certain ways. If we're afraid that we're going to lose our position, then we behave and act in certain ways. If we're afraid we're going to lose our marriage, then it helps, it, it determines... I'm telling you, most of us operate out of insecurity, and God's saying, stop it. You are secure. You don't have to operate out of fear anymore, fear of losing something. Instead, you operate out of the security of knowing who you are in me, chosen, holy, dearly loved. Suddenly, all the insecurity, perfect love casts out all fear, doesn't it? Fear has to do with punishment. Suddenly, insecurity's gone. That's why when you show up at work, you can show up with your head held high no matter how tough the pressure is at work. You don't have to worry about the boss. He's not in control of your life, really, is he? No, your Heavenly Father's in control of your life. So show up with your head held high and act accordingly. 
Anyway, that's another sermon. Rabbit trail. Let me pull it back in. We are chosen. We are holy. We are dearly loved. This is who we are. Say it with me. I'm, I'm chosen. I'm holy. And I'm dearly loved. Say it with me again like you mean it. I'm chosen. I'm holy. And I'm dearly loved. Doesn't it, did something shift inside? Ooh. Hey, man. I hope it did. This is who we are. This is who we are in Christ. And our behavior should match our identity as his followers, as Christians. Our behavior should match our identity. You get that? We need to put into practice what we know to be true about ourselves so that, that our behavior will be brought in line with our identity in Christ. Does that make sense? This is who we are? Well, then this is how we should live. And that's what Paul's trying to get to here. First, in Colossians chapter 3, he, it, this is where the rubber meets the road. We have discovered who we are. Now Paul says, in light of this, in light of who you are now, act and live this way. Does that make sense? All right. Let's read that passage of Scripture again. And I, I would tell you that we're just going to forge right ahead, and we're not. We're going to stay stuck in verse 12. I'm sorry. We are taking our time. Is that all right? It's just the way it is. I wanted to move faster through this, but I, I just can't. I just can't. So if you're mad at anybody, get mad at the Holy Spirit, because this is what he wants you to hear, okay? Therefore, Paul writes, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, I'm chosen, I'm holy, I'm, come on, I'm chosen, I'm holy, I'm dearly loved, clothe yourselves, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word because you don't pull any punches. You tell us exactly, you tell us exactly what's expected of us. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that. We live in a world that wants to pull us away from you. We live in a world that wants us to hide our identity. You, we live in a world that wants to corrupt our behavior. And here it is in black and white, how we should live in light of who we are. I pray in the name of Jesus that a generation of Christ followers would be raised up who live firmly, comfortably, securely in their identity as being chosen, holy, and dearly loved. I pray we wouldn't try to hide that identity, but God, we would live it out. We would just walk it out. Heads held high. Not living by fear of what others might think or say, but living in the light of your love. Acting as we should. Living as we should. Behaving as we should. The world may try to corrupt our behavior. They may try to distract us and discourage us from being who we're supposed to be and living as we should, but God, you'll have none of it. Your word, let it come alive to us. Let your word be brought to life in us. Help us to see how we can take this word with us tomorrow when we go to work, when we go to school. Help us to see how we can put it into practice so that we can live a life that brings you glory and you honor. This world so desperately needs to see it. Let us be candles in the darkness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.
You know, so often, so often Christians are known only for what we don't do. That's the way I grew up anyway. Christians don't smoke, they don't dip, they don't chew, they don't go with girls who do. Christians don't do a lot of things. It's true. We don't lie. We don't cheat. We don't steal. We don't sleep around. It's true that there are a lot of things that Christians don't do. But there's another side to this coin, and that's what Paul brings to light here today. Christians also ought to be known for what they do. Not just for what they don't do, but for what they do. Personal holiness has as much to do... Let me, let me rephrase that. Personal holiness is just as much about what we do as what we don't do. Okay? So personal holiness is, is just as much about what we do as what we don't do. All right? So I want to go back to the clothing metaphor that Paul seems to like. He uses that metaphor, clothe yourselves. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He told us earlier in the chapter there are some things we should not have in our spiritual closets. There are certain actions and attitudes that should no longer be in our spiritual closets, okay? Sexual immorality should not be in our, in our closet anymore. No more sex outside of marriage. Gone. He talks about no more lust. There should be no more lustful thinking. There should be no more impure thoughts. Gone. He says there should be no lying. We, we are not to tell lies anymore. We are not to use filthy language in our conversation. It's gone. By the way, these are Micah's pants. I asked him, you got any you need to get rid of? He said, oh, I might have a pair or two, Dad. Greed has no part in our life anymore. We don't chase after money like the world does. All right? We've got a higher purpose in life than just getting rich. All right? Shouldn't be in our closet anymore. So those things are gone. What's in your closet, by the way? What's in your closet? In your closet should be, I kind of like this, Compassion. This is a, uh, our, you guys recognize this, don't you? Okay, it's a shirt that we made for our Hispanic brothers and sisters, and as we work together, uh, serving the community, we have these, we put these shirts on, right? Compassion, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. We, uh, we should have in our spiritual closets compassion that we clothe ourselves in every day. Kindness. This is We Care Outreach. We work with a local group of ministers, primarily black ministers from different denominations to reach out into the communities around us and bring the light of Jesus into some pretty dark places. But uh, kindness, we put kindness on. This should be in our spiritual closet. Humility, why pants? Well, humility, you spend a lot of time on your knees, or you should, you know what I'm saying? We'll get into more of that. Gentleness and patience. I have no idea what these represent. I just wanted to use them, okay? <laughs> these things should be in our closet. These things, no longer. That's what we don't do anymore. They're out. Paul said, put them to death. 
don't mess around with these things. Get them out of your spiritual closet. Don't ever wear those particular garments ever again. Don't touch them. Stay away from them. However, these are the garments that you should put on every day. Before you walk out the door, you make sure that you have clothed yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And what does that mean, Pastor Mark? What, what are these new clothes that are hanging in my closet? How do I put those on every day? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's what we're about to get into. Let's talk about these five virtues. You know, we don't talk about virtues very much in this culture anymore. We let everybody determine for themselves what they're going to find important, how they're going to live their life, but that's not the way we live as Christians. We look to the Word of God and to the example of Jesus to see how we really should put into practice the Word of God as it's given to us. So let's talk about these five virtues that we are told to clothe ourselves in every day. The first trait that Paul mentions, the first virtue is compassion. What is compassion? Well, the Greek word for compassion is a word that refers to the bowels. Whenever I think of bowels, I think of something dark and nasty. You know what I'm saying? But the Greeks thought that deep emotion came from deep within the body itself. And so when the King James actually translates what we translate compassion, King James calls it bowels of mercy. We are to put on bowels of, sounds kind of gross. We're to put on bowels of mercy every day. That's part of the way we should clothe ourselves. Greeks believe that emotions came from deep within the human body. So you could think of compassion this way. Compassion is a deep, strong, sympathetic feeling. A deep, strong, sympathetic feeling for other people. So, a couple things I want to point out to you about compassion. Compassion, first of all, takes us right into another person's pain. And compassion also helps us share their pain. Now that might be hard for some of us to understand because compassion is not one of our strong suits. And I would say this, that for the most part, most of us have been taught most of our life to keep hurting people at a distance. Because hurt people hurt people sometimes. And we don't want to be hurt. But God's saying just the opposite here. He says, my children will clothe themselves in compassion. They will, they will look at someone in pain and step into their pain with them in order to share that pain. Why? Because God wants us to help alleviate that pain. Most of us want to cut and run. Oh my God, here she comes again. If I ask her how she's doing, she's going to let me know, and I don't want to know. You know who I'm talking about. You go to the family dinner, you don't want to sit beside Uncle Leo. And everybody's got an Uncle Leo. Look, Jesus had a heart of compassion. You can't read the Gospels without seeing his compassion for people. We see it in John 11. I want to focus for just a minute on this story that we are, that's so familiar to us in La, uh, about the uh, resurrection of Lazarus. In John 11, Jesus approaches the tomb where his friend Lazarus was buried. The sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, oh, they were terribly upset as you can only imagine, and, and, and they were weeping at the loss of their brother whom they loved so much. And there were other friends and other family members who had gathered alongside that tomb as well, and they were weeping. There was a lot of crying going on, as there are 
at so many funerals when you attend them. John eleven thirty three 33 tells us that when Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Deeply moved. Bowels of mercy. Deeply moved and troubled. Then it goes on to say in John eleven thirty five, 35, what did Jesus do? He wept. He came into their pain, stepped into their pain with them in order to share it. But he didn't stop there. He worked to alleviate it. And we know. It goes on to say in, uh, in John eleven thirty eight 38 and 39, we see the compassion of Jesus move him into their sorrow, to share their sorrow, and then to help alleviate their sorrow. John eleven thirty eight 38 says, Jesus, once more, what? Deeply moved, there's this compassion again, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Take away the stone. Now, we know how the story of Lazarus turned out. Jesus spoke to that dead body, and the dead body came out still wrapped in its grave clothes. So we know that Jesus not only was touched by the feelings of their infirmity, of their sorrow, we know that he also came alongside to share it. And now we see that Jesus spoke to that pain in order to alleviate that pain. Listen, here's the point I want us to make. Christ's compassion took him into the pain of Lazarus' family and friends. Christ's compassion helped him share their pain. And then his compassion moved Jesus to take action. He didn't just stand passively by and cry with them. He said, I can do something about this. I can do something about this. And he did. Now, now look, here's the deal. We may not be able to raise the dead in order to alleviate a family's pain. That may be a little bit above our pay grade, or God might choose not to work in that particular way in this particular moment. We know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead to show his authority over death and the grave. There was a purpose behind it, right? We may not be able to raise that dead person back to life in order to help alleviate that family's pain, but I tell you what we can do. We can sit and pray with them in the midst of their grief. We can help prepare a meal for them and serve them in the midst of that grief. We can help clean their home. We can help cover some of their bills. We can call them or send a card to assure them that they're not alone in the midst of that grief. I guarantee you that if we are as deeply moved at the hurts of other people as Jesus apparently was, it will make us do something. We can't just let it go. We can't just sit here and watch these people hurt. That's what it means to clothe yourself with compassion. We live in a world, does it seem to you like it does to me that everybody is hurting? You walk into your job on a Monday morning and that little lady that seems to always be so bright and chipper, she's kind of sitting to herself with her head held, you know, hanging down. Do you, do you wonder what she's going through? Or that kid sitting in your classroom that always seems to be sitting by themselves. Do you sometimes wonder what they're going through? Look, we live in a world that's filled with hurting, suffering people. 
Sin has destroyed their lives. Sickness has stolen their health. Disappointment and despair have trashed their hopes and dreams. And as Christians, as followers of Christ, we can't respond by condemning their sin, and we don't respond by ignoring their pain, and we don't respond by looking past those tears. Instead, we respond to them as Jesus did. This is what we're called to be. This is who we are. We are called to respond to them. We are moved by our compassion to come alongside and do something to alleviate the pain. Do you understand there is healing in your words? You can speak life into someone's suffering. You can speak joy into their hearts when all their feelings despair. Your hands can bring light into darkness. Why? Because you're so special? No, because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Are you clothing yourselves with compassion? Are you looking for opportunities to be the hands and the voice of God? Speaking life into people who are dying. Speaking joy into people who are crying. Are you moved by compassion? Are you clothed your... Nah, man, it's just my life. I'll let them live theirs. I'll live mine. You don't get who you are. You're an agent of change. You're an agent of change in a world of darkness. That's who you are. Clothe yourselves in compassion. Will you be sensitive to the pain of your coworkers? Will you hear the cry of their heart? Look beyond their nasty attitude to say, what is really going on here? And what can I do to help bring life into this person who seems to be suffering and hurting so deeply? Can the people you work with, the people you study with, the people you play with, can they turn to you when they're needing help in the midst of their pain? Can they look to you? Or are you someone to avoid? I'm just being straight. Second piece of clothing that we need to put on is kindness. The second piece of clothing that we put on is kindness. The Greek word translate, and we're not going to spend as much time as, as that's one of my little, sorry. <laughs> the Greek word translated as kindness is a word that's also used to describe a delicious wine that's mellowed with age. Some of, it, some of you went, oh, cha-ching, I know what that is. I don't. All I know is, you know, the alcohol and cough syrup, and I hate it. But, but anyway, the Greek word translated as kindness is also a word used to describe a delicious wine that's mellowed with age. All the hardness and the bitterness, all the harshness and the bitterness is, is gone. That's what kindness is. Kindness, kindness treats other people without harshness. Kindness respects other people for who they are. Kindness values people. And kindness treats people well. And I want you to understand something about kindness. I believe with all my heart, kindness can transform a life. I believe with all my heart, kindness can transform a life. You people think that, many of you guys, especially girls in, in MSP maybe, or those of you in recovery, you think that Cindy is who Cindy is today because I preached a really powerful message one morning and she came in here and she hit her knees and cried and God broke her and she just got up a different person. Heck no. You know what began to melt Cindy's hard heart? When she showed up at church the first time 
she was greeted by name. And someone hugged her and said, I'm glad you're here. Just an act of kindness. I guarantee you, she doesn't remember a thing I preached on that Sunday morning. But she remembers the handshake and the smile and the hug. Kindness can transform a life. Kindness can be a key to unlock a door to a hard, cold heart. Kindness. Kindness. Never, under, never underestimate the power of kindness. And we see Jesus demonstrating kindness everywhere he goes. Read the Gospels for yourself. You can't help but be struck by the kindness that Jesus expressed to all kinds of people. In John chapter 4, he spoke with kindness to the Samaritan woman at the well who had been married five times and was living with a man she wasn't even married to. But he spoke to her with kindness, and she was surprised by it. And you know what happened? She was saved as a result of it. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus touched the leper with kindness. Many of us have never seen a leper. We don't know the disfigurement that it causes. I grew up seeing lepers in the streets of India, and I can tell you, lepers are ugly people to have to look at. Their outward appearance is it's sometimes so disfiguring it will take your breath away. Their noses have caved in, the cheekbones have caved in. They have lost fingers and appendages because they don't feel pain anymore, so they will put their hand accidentally in a fire. The hand will burn off, they'll never even know it. So they're scarred up, burned up. You don't know what a leper will look like underneath the wrappings of cloth that they sometimes cover themselves with. Jews were not permitted to be around lepers because leprosy had come to be a uh, representative of sin. So lepers, once a, a leper was diagnosed with leprosy, they were forced to leave their families, leave their homes. And if well people, healthy people, were approaching a leper, the leper was commanded to call out, unclean, unclean. But what does Jesus do when he comes in the presence of a leper? He touches them. In Matthew 8, you see it. Jesus touches the leper. Everybody else is running away. And Jesus, you know what? And maybe it was the first time in years and years that that leper had been touched by another human being. Jesus touched him. And when he touched him, the leper was healed. Don't tell me kindness can't transform a life. In Mark 10 we see Jesus again expressing kindness. He received the little children with kindness. He received the little children. The, the disciples said, get these kids out of here. Look at their snotty noses. Their diapers are dirty. Look, that little kid has already peed in his pants. Don't let him sit in Jesus' lap. Jesus said, hey, leave the children alone. Let them come to me. That's kindness, man. That's kindness. And they crawled up in his lap, and when they did, what did Jesus do? Bless them. Don't tell me, don't tell me kindness can't transform a life. Oh, it can. Never underestimate the power of kindness. Look, Henry Drummond said this, the greatest thing a man can do for his heavenly father is to be kind to some of his other children. As a child of God, and that's who you are, right? You're chosen. You're holy, you're dearly loved. I challenge you, I encourage you. The Lord commands you, <laughs> dress yourself in kindness every day. Respect people, show them that you put value in them. Don't speak harshly, speak kindly. 
find ways to show respect and value to other people. Let me give you a couple of ideas. Why don't you smile at somebody you don't even know when you pass them at Walmart? See if that'll freak them out. I tried it this morning. Didn't work very well. Everybody's sleepy, I guess, in the morning. They're like, Hold a door open for someone that you've uh, never met. Look someone in the eye and ask them, I mean, really ask them, how are you today? I did that to you Wednesday because I could tell Stevie, man, something's going on. <laughs> uh, why don't you clean up a mess that somebody else has made? Oh, oh. What? That's an act of kindness to clean up a mess that someone else has made? Why don't you get down on the floor and play with some kids? Let them get your clothes messy. Let, it, let, them, let them wrinkle that pretty white shirt you got on. Let them leave a stain behind. It's okay, because that kid may remember that moment. And you may have unlocked a door to their heart. Find a way to show respect and value to other people. Show kindness. I want to break out into a little old 70s jingle, but I'm not going to do it. Because Cindy's not here. There's nothing to right? Look, your kind, I just want to leave it with this. Your kindness. Your kindness may be a catalyst to bring change into somebody else's life. Your kindness may be the catalyst that God uses to bring change into somebody's life. Never underestimate the power of kindness. Clothe yourself in kindness every day. The third article of clothing, the third virtue that I want you to think about and the, and the word brings to our attention is humility. Humility. Humility is the opposite of pride and arrogance. Humility is the opposite of pride and arrogance. I heard a story one time about a young woman who went to her pastor and said, Pastor, I have to, bless you, I have to confess to you a sin. She said, I come to church on Sundays and, and I can't help but think that I'm the prettiest girl in the congregation. And I know I shouldn't think that way, but I can't help it. You're going to have to help me with it. And the pastor replied, you know, Mary, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. In your case, it's not a sin. It's just a mistake. <laughs> so I got to laugh, man. I'm pretty excited. Look. Sometimes humility is easier to talk about than it is to, uh, to practice, amen? True humility, true humility. I'm not talking about false humility. We all know what that looks like. True humility is anchored in a correct understanding of who you are. Who are you again? Chosen, holy, dearly loved. True humility comes from understanding I am chosen and I am holy and I am dearly loved. It doesn't really matter how you treat me. I know who I am. It doesn't really matter what anyone else has to say about me or even what you might think about me when I have to deal with you in a very confrontational kind of way. I know who I am. And nothing changes that. Then you can be who you are, and they can be who they are, but you're okay. Because you've got your feet on that solid ground clearly understanding I am chosen, I am holy, and I am dearly loved. Christian humility flows from the understanding that it's Christ who makes us who we are. True humility comes from knowing that it's Christ who helps us do what we do. 
I really want to say I appreciate you guys that will send me notes or texts or even speak to me, as some of you did this morning, telling me thank you for speaking into my life and thank you for what you do to help me. And uh, I appreciate that, but you need to understand, if I do anything good, it's not me doing it, it's Christ doing it through me. It's for him, man. And if I do anything well, it's because it's Christ that's given me the strength and the wisdom to do it well. If you do anything well, it's not you doing it. It's Christ doing it through you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's get that straight. All right? So true humility knows it's Christ who makes us who we are. True humility comes from knowing it's Christ who helps us do what we do. True humility comes from knowing it's Christ who gives us what we have. Some of you are flush with cash this morning. Hallelujah! And you think it's yours to spend. It's not yours to spend. It's God's money. It may be in your wallet right now, but it's God's money. Right? You may have an incredible talent to bless the world. Hallelujah! It's not your talent. It's God's talent. He wants to use you to bless the world with it, but it's really all about him. Amen? That's humility. So use it freely, man. Be as generous as you want. I mean, use that talent as much as you can. But you better always understand that blessed be the name of the Lord. He can give and he can take away. Because it's his to give and to take away. We got that? Humility now. Humility. I mean, Jesus. Uh, you know, I, I have to say this, and I'll, I'll, I'll go on and talk about Jesus a little bit. You and I have no basis for pride at all. You in recovery who have gotten a year under your belt, you got to understand, it's not you that did it. It's Christ that did it for you. you got, there's no room for pride in our hearts. No room whatsoever for selfish pride in our hearts. Anything we have came from him. Every victory we have is his. Amen? Every blessing we enjoy, it came from him. So, so stop thinking so much of yourself. Now, don't be ashamed of yourself. Don't do that. I'm not saying hide your light under a basket. I am just saying, let's be honest about who we really are. Uh, if it weren't for Christ, it's, where would we be? What would we do? Uh, some of us know where we'd be and what we do. And it, those aren't good places. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, I've been there. All right, let's talk about Jesus for just a minute. Jesus shows us exactly what humility is, and I want us to see this, and it's, uh, I hope I can describe it well for you. You may have to take it home and, and study it for yourself. But Jesus shows us what true humility is and where true humility comes from in John 13. In John 13, we see the scene just before the Last Supper, just before Jesus goes to the cross to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He's eating the Last Supper with his disciples. And we see Jesus do something that's extraordinary, extraordinary on so many different levels. We see Jesus take the form of a, serf, of a uh, uh, servant and wash the feet of his disciples. Now, that, that, it's a nasty job. That was a nasty job. I imagine most of us would be repulsed if we thought that we were going to have to go and wash the feet of everyone in this room, right? It's, it's kind of like, even for us today, that's like weird. Well, back in the day, it was really weird. There is never a recorded instance where a person of superior position washed the feet of someone in an inferior position, except for this story we read in John 13. And I want, you to, I want you to see the way that John, the, the writer of this gospel, frames the story. I want you to understand what the motivation was that led Jesus to wash the feet of his disciples, even the feet of the man who ultimately betrayed him, Judas. Watch. Verse 
John 13, starting at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. What is Jesus' motivation for washing the disciples' feet? You see it? He could have. What could Jesus have done? He'd been given all authority, right? All power. He knew who he was. What could he have done? He could have made them wash his feet. He could have made Judas come and stand before him and confess what he was about to do. He could have exposed Judas for who he was. He could have humiliated Judas in the eyes of his disciples. After all, he had the authority. Jesus had the authority. Jesus had the power to do whatever he wanted to do. But what did he choose to do instead? He chose to put on the garments of a servant, get a towel and a basin of water, and wash their nasty feet. See, our problem is sometimes as believers, we come across, we come across as self-righteous, sanctimonious, and instead of understanding that I'm nothing without Jesus, we come across as trying to be Jesus. We try to be the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what you're doing wrong. Let me point out all of your faults. The Word of God says, boom, boom, boom. Instead of taking the form of a servant, we take the form of a master. You see it in Facebook posts. You see it on the job where believers are raised and elevated in positions because they, they, do have a, they should have a strong work ethic. And suddenly they're lording it over their coworkers instead of working with their coworkers. Do you understand what I'm saying? But that's not the way we clothe ourselves. We're supposed to clothe ourselves with humility, recognizing that in and of myself, I'm nothing. And there but for the grace of God goes I. We need to clothe ourselves with humility, recognizing who we are, but not exercising our authority, not exercising any power we've attained by reaching certain positions, not exercising uh, in harsh ways our, um, our, our, uh, our, uh, our moral authority, but using that authority, using those positions we're given by the Lord, using whatever power or position we might have at our disposal, using those things and serving in humble ways. Not using those things to lord over anybody, but using those things to win people to the Lord. Does that make sense? I mean, we, we, we need this lesson on humility today in the world that we're living in. I have seen too many posts on Facebook about Trump's 
oh, let's get, let's get real. Let's get real. I have seen too many Christians posting on Facebook about how now we're going to put it to them. We're gonna, Trump's in power. God raised him up. Here we go. Come on, people. Bill, you're smiling. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? If, if we have been able to achieve influence because of our... If the Christian community in America has been able to achieve some kind of influence in this nation because of the outcomes of that last election, then why don't we just keep our mouths shut and work hard to make this nation better? And stop trying to exercise all these rights that you know, well, let's just, let's be Christ to the world. Let's be Christ to the world. Because there, but for the grace of God, that's us. That's us marching in the streets in Washington yesterday. I, I hated what I saw going on. I'm, I'm thinking, man, I, I don't understand it. Some of my friends, some of my youth group members from old churches were in that march. And I'm thinking, what, what, did, I, what did I get wrong? You know, what did I do wrong? I could, I guess, get in touch with them on Facebook and ream them out. Don't you know what the Word of God says? But instead, you know what? I'm going to respond this way. I'm going to love them. I'm going to pray for them. I want to maintain my friendship with them. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be right. I don't have to win the argument. I can let it go. I got more important things in store for them. Right? All right. I'm sorry. Let's move on. I just can't think of a more timely message than this one, y'all. I'm, I'm telling you. You want to change the world you live in? This is the way you do it. This is the way you do it. All right. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm bogging down. Um, where are we? Let me just say this one thing. Humility recognizes that the will of God is more important than my own. That's good, you need to write that down or at least think about it. Humility recognizes that the will of God is more important than my own. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Let's just make sure that when we get dressed up tomorrow to go to work or to go to class or to do whatever we're going to do, make sure you got that virtue of humility on your back or on your heart, wrapped around your heart. Make sure you got humility. You're dressed up in humility. All right, gentleness, quickly, gentleness. We got gentleness too. Gentleness is a virtue. In, in a world, quickly. What time is it? I'm lost up here. Real quick, let's get it finished. Gentleness. In a world that values, in a world that values trash talk and sarcasm, We're to be complimentary and respectful. In a, in a world that finds worth in rude, obnoxious behavior, you and I, as the children of God, are to be soft-spoken and pleasant. Gentleness is really about treating people with tenderness and tact. Say that word with me, tact. Tact. You know, you can speak truth to somebody. We're told to speak it with love. Speak the truth in love. But so many of us are... Speaking the truth in condemnation. 
the truth and hatefulness. We're, we're to speak truth and love. Jesus says about himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, and I hope they can say it about you and me, I am gentle and humble in heart. We see the gentleness of Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus in, in, in uh, John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a religious leader, and he should have known the way to salvation. And Jesus patiently led him through the scriptures and taught him what it was to be born again. We see it in uh, the way Jesus responded to the disciples who wanted to destroy the Samaritan village. The Samaritan village that, that, uh, that Jesus and his disciples came to, Jesus wanted to go in and minister to them. The Samaritans rejected Jesus' ministry. The disciples stepped back. And they said, Jesus, you want us to call fire down from the heaven and consume them? That's low. <laughs> they won't listen to us, Lord. Let's get them. Jesus, Jesus rebuked them and said, leave them alone for crying out loud. He could have called the fire. Nah, that's, there's another time. There's another sign I have for them. When they see me raised from the dead in that tomb empty, then maybe they'll believe. Anyway, he didn't say that, but that's what I'm kind of thinking. Jesus was, you know, I don't want to add to the word. I better stop. And we see Jesus again. We see his gentleness at work. When he rides into Jerusalem, riding a colt, not a stallion. You see, a conquering king always rode the biggest, toughest horse, right? Well, Jesus enters the city riding a colt that had never been ridden before. He didn't make, Jesus, now let me just say this though, okay? He rides into Jerusalem on this colt, okay? And the people, of course, this big parade started and they're giving Jesus all the praise and Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We know that, how that goes, you know, we celebrate Palm Sunday. Now, not long after that, this same Jesus who was meek and mild and so gentle, he goes into the temple and starts flipping over tables, right? That doesn't appear to be so gentle, but can I remind you? He wasn't defending his own honor. He was defending the honor of God. He wasn't making a show out of himself and his authority. He was declaring the authority and the glory of God. Okay, so let's get that right. It was never, for Jesus, it was never about him. It was always about the Father. May that be said of us. It's not about me. It's about the Father. It's about my God. Okay. Read the Gospels for yourself. You'll you'll see this. Jesus never took hurtful shots at people. He was truthful, but he never said anything intended to hurt, to wound. Jesus was often very pointed and very direct in what he had to say, but he was never hurtful. He was never insensitive. He was never tactless. And I think in the same way that we ought to make sure that when we go to work or school tomorrow that we have clothed ourselves with gentleness. When you, when you find yourself in a conflict, and I promise you I will at some point find myself in a conflict because you can't work with teenagers without finding yourself in a conflict. Right? That doesn't mean I have to raise my voice. Sandy. <laughs> In a conflict, lower your voice. Be gentle. You don't have to be hard and harsh. And you don't have to bring other people into the conflict. That's what we like to do, don't we? Y'all got to take sides, take sides. Here's my side. Don't listen to them. They don't have a side. Me, me, me. Yeah. No matter how frustrated you might get, clothe yourself with gentleness and maintain your composure. You don't have to take the bait. You don't have to take the bait. And they will be throwing bait your way. 
in every situation, try to put yourselves in the other person's shoes. What's going on in them to make them react so strongly to what I just said? Try to get into their head a little bit. What are they? Clothe yourself with gentleness. Clothe yourself with gentleness. In the days ahead, the argument and, and, and the, the volume of the voices that surround us are going to be elevating. It's going to be getting louder and louder. Come on. You know it is. Let's don't add our voice to all that cacophony. Let's keep our voices down. Let's be gentle. We don't have to take the, the, the bait of offense. We can let it go. We don't have to be dragged into somebody else's conflict. We can let it go. Okay? I'm sorry. Let's move on. Patience. We should spend the rest of the day on patience. I mean the rest of the day from now until midnight on patience, but we're not because God's already trying to work patience in your life, right? Yeah. That's what I thought. So we're going to address ourselves every day with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. Don't forget patience. Patience, in this case, has to do with people, not circumstances. Patience. What face came to your mind when I said patience? Patience with people. He's a senior. He's, <laughs> he's in my fourth period. But we see Jesus. <laughs> Caitlin's running through the little, who is that, who is that now? We see Jesus being patient. Jesus was so patient. Read the scriptures. Read the gospels, man. Jesus is so incredibly patient with his disciples. These guys were so thick-headed. They were stubborn. They were selfish. They were lazy. And even after all they saw and experienced, they just had a hard time believing that Jesus is who they knew him to be, the Son of God. But no matter how frustrated Jesus got with them, and no matter how impatient he may have felt. You never see him expressing that to him. We never read about Jesus railing at them because of their stupidity. He never embarrasses them or humiliates them because they just don't seem to get it quick enough. You can, you can read that for yourself. He, he might have rebuked them, but he, he, he never humiliated them. He, he might have corrected them, but he never rejected them. He just kept patiently teaching them, patiently showing them, patiently uh, 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 bringing them into, into an understanding of who he was. I mean, he demonstrates how to be patient with people who don't do what they ought to do. He, tells us, he shows us how to be patient with people who fail to live up with our expectations, and that's really the problem with us. We are impatient because we have placed unrealistic expectations on other people. You realize that your child is only three. He's not going to be able to pick his room up and wash his own clothes yet. You know that, right? So don't be so, give them, give them room to make mistakes. Give them room to grow. Give them room to, 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 to learn from, from, their, uh, from their mistakes. We've gone so long. I, listen, I'm so, con listen. I want to say this, and I want to, um, I, I don't, I, I don't want to go down the political road here, but I'm, I'm going to, I guess. The hope for, for America is not found in the one who sits in the, in the Oval Office. Trump's not going to pull this country out of this mess. There's no hope. There's no hope in Washington for this, for this nation. Our hope's not found in a leg legislator or a, a president or a Supreme Court. You know where the hope of this nation is found, the hope of the world is found? Sitting in these chairs right here. 
Every problem this nation faces is a spiritual problem. It's not a financial problem. It's not a political problem. Not a racial problem. It's a spiritual problem. And the only answer to a spiritual problem is Jesus Christ. And we have been raised up. I, I, am, I know some people are in despair. They just think this nation is going to hell in a handbasket. And, and the more I think about it, the more excited I am, not the more fearful. I am so excited about the opportunities that are going to come our way to let the grace and the mercy of God flow through our lives into the lives of people around us. And when we clothe ourselves in compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, it gives us the right to speak and the right to share Jesus with other people. It gives us a moral authority to say what we've got to say. It, it gives us an, an ability, it gives God an ability to shine through our lives so that sin is exposed for what it is, so that racism is seen for what it is, so that um, poverty is seen for what it is. When we live as Christ would have us live, when we put on these garments every day and do what we're supposed to do, it brings Christ into every situation that we find ourselves in. It brings Christ into every conversation that we have with people. It brings, you, you see what I'm saying? We are the hope. As Christ works through us, you and I are the hope of this nation. If you think Trump can change the direction of this nation, you're sadly mistaken. A Republican Congress isn't going to do it. A new Supreme Court justice isn't going to do it. The only way we can change the course of this nation is to let Christ live through his church. And it'll change. Little churches like ours all across this nation, if we would simply obey the Lord, seek his face, and obey Man, we could turn this nation around. So the hope of this nation is in our hands. The hope for your family is in your hands. 